This is That So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Keesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. This is episode 135 of That So Second Millennium. We don't have a lot of hard-hitting interviews on That So Second Millennium, but I'd say this is one of them. Today we have an interview with Father Bob Spitzer that I got to be part of this time, which is very exciting. Uh, Previously, Father uh, Spitzer had talked to Bill, and we'd recorded a conversation just between the two of them back on episode about 20. But today we talked to him together, and Father Spitzer has some pretty uh, provocative stuff to talk about. He compares the trend toward atheism and toward people becoming what are called nuns in the broader culture with the trend toward theism among practicing scientists. That's shocking. You're not going to hear that everywhere. Um, I couldn't help but be reminded of our conversation with Matthew Cloud about Americans specifically refusing to get into tech because, well, it involves math and math is hard. Yeah, we, we, uh, Obviously, we exploit tech, we use it, uh, we venerate it in a sense, and we definitely venerate science, and yet we're unwilling to do what's necessary to actually get into it and understand it for ourselves as a you know statistical average across the broader culture. It's kind of amazing. He talks about reasons from physics to believe in a provident creator, which is a major focus of his. Um, he started a new website uh, called PurposefulUniverse.com where he, uh, he collects, he discusses a strategy for that website to, uh, to try to come across people's radar who aren't necessarily searching right now to give them ideas to think and try to look beyond the, shallow, the shallowness of everyday life and then you know, draw them in toward, uh, toward considering God and Jesus Christ specifically. He also talks about the evidence from psychology about the awful toll exacted by gender reassignment surgery, which is stuff that uh, you're just not going to hear across the bulk of the internet, even on, yeah, even even with people who uh, will express opposition to the idea, they don't talk about the actual toll, they don't talk about the actual price, they don't talk about the actual problems that are being faced by those people. Um, Not enough, anyway. So we're very proud to bring you this interview. And here is Father Bob Spitzer. We're delighted to welcome Father Robert Spitzer, SJ, uh, back to our microphones. Father has been the president of the Magis Center for about 10 years, producing, I think, more valuable and learned multimedia products in those 10 years than I think most similar organizations do over many decades. It's just a, a tremendously prolific and wonderful a ministry and service that the Magis Center is performing under his uh, guidance. Uh, Father was president of Gonzaga University prior to that, and that was from 1998 to 2009. And he has written numerous books that not only touch on many aspects of Catholic theology and philosophy and spirituality and pastoral concerns, but uh, what what I love about it is that all of his books and all of his conversations online or on air seem to intertwine all those beautiful aspects, uh, the theology, the philosophy, the spirituality, and a true love, uh, pastoral care of, of individuals and of groups. One of the groups that he uh, uh, guides uh, extremely well is the Napa Institute, which many of our listeners may have heard of. Now, uh, uh, Lastly, just a mention of his multimedia presence. He's uh, Magis has three websites, uh, and one is MagisCenter.com, one is CredibleCatholic.com, and the newest one, Father, right, is PurposefulUniverse.com. Uh huh. Okay, great. Yeah. So, uh, well, you're the uh, you're the quintessential uh, host uh, and quintessential guide on many, many uh, subjects. Uh, We love you on um, the uh, Father Spitzer's Universe, which appears weekly on EWTN. I think that's must-see TV as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) It really is. It's great. Uh, So, 
let me start with with my uh, first question. Uh, I think of your framework of the four levels of happiness all the time. I think mm -hmm. that's uh, still a real fundamental guide for understanding uh, uh, human aspirations, et cetera, and, and society's functioning now. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the second level of happiness that you've identified is ego gratification and mm -hmm. competition, right? Mm -hmm. And the third is uh, kind of uh, a, a, a common good, a greater good recognition with a willingness to sacrifice for that. Mm -hmm. It hasn't yet reached a level uh, understanding that it's really all about uh, God and the Holy Spirit guiding that, but uh, it's that third level is definitely something to aspire to. And what these days, it seems to me, uh, sometimes our culture um, uh, has uh, generally favored the third level uh, of happiness. Uh, even our Constitution talks about the common good, and President Kennedy talked about ask not what your country can do for you, etc. It's always been there, but right now it seems as though almost our culture is slipping back to uh, a level two kind of mind frame and uh, do you do you think of it that way and is it becoming a level two that's even more aggressive in its competitiveness and uh therefore risky and more prone toward a culture of death as opposed to a culture of life yeah absolutely i do i um you know that ego comparative identity who's achieving more who's achieving less who's got more power less power more intelligence less intelligence more popularity less popularity more status less status etc that whole mentality uh, has become almost obsessive within the culture. Uh, Facebook and, um, you know, social medias, you know, Instagram, et cetera, have not helped. Uh, this has just been uh, uh, definitely, you know, it exacerbates, uh, you know, anxieties among young people. They are so ego comparative now that the first consequence is uh, they suffer from what I call the symptoms of the comparison game. But more than that, the, the symptoms now have manifest themselves in hugely increased rates of depression, anxiety, suicides, impulsivity, et cetera. This was prior to COVID. So yeah. uh, so it's, it's pretty bad out there, but concomitant with that and probably relating to the increased rates of suicide and um, of uh, depression and anxiety is the decrease in religion. So uh, this what I call level two obsession has replaced level four, which is wow. the, uh, you know, getting meaning and identity from God, the absolute, from religion, from the eternal, from something that has ultimate and absolute significance, that fourth level of transcendent meaning. Um, if you get rid of it completely, you have no you know, ground for hope uh, in a better future, no ground for a belief in some kind of purpose and, and meaning that goes beyond uh, this worldly existence and indeed beyond the, as it were, the triviality of my own world. Um, and once that's gone, you can just see the combined effects of the comparison game, you know, who's achieving more, who's achieving less, who's got more intelligence, that's intelligence. You can see that replacing religion, which is normally a self-giving, sacrificial, you know, worship-filled, you know, recognition of a creator that's beyond myself and a desire, uh, you know, to move into the creator's will for me, uh, that, that replacement is terrible for the emotional health of our young people. And as I said, you know, it's just not, it was, you know, the sexual revolution didn't help matters any. Um, that certainly got things off the ground. Then the absolutizing of freedom by the university establishment, the so-called university elites. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, you know, the elevation of psychology uh, to almost the state of a religion, uh, you know, which many, you know, psychologists called out, you know, way back in the 1960s and 70s, all of those things were, of course, starters uh, for the whole trend. Um, you know, and now uh, we've got, you know, the, the, uh, the, the transgender agenda 
and that that doesn't help because you know it's it's a, it, it, as you can you know you move into that domain and you have a staggering 19 times increase in suicide 19 times that's nearly 2000% are you kidding me i mean this, this is terrible for, for your emotional health so you can yeah. imagine all these yeah. things you know put together and what you're dealing with now is you add Instagrams, Facebook, social media, get my profile updated, ego comparative, ego comparative, ego comparative. And don't bother, you know, the, the new atheism has finally put the, the cherry on the on the horrible Sunday. You know, the the, the idea that that uh, we're going to just take God away from people because it's all non-rational when in point of fact, for the first time in history, scientists are becoming more and more believers than ever before. The, the latest Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science shows that 51% of scientists are theists, believers in God, whereas 41% are either agnostics or atheists. What's really interesting, though, is the trend among young scientists. I think that's 40 years and younger. Um, those That group of scientists has 66% theists and only um, 30% agnostics and atheists. So the trend is definitely among the scientists is toward belief in God. Whereas in the public, oh, gosh. Yeah. have really kind of gotten our poor kids by the throat and are just selling them a bill of goods when the evidence for God from science, creation from science, intelligent uh, design from science, uh, for, for the soul from peer-reviewed medical studies and near-death experiences, et cetera, is getting greater and greater. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. yeah I had the privilege of reading your book from a few years ago, uh, The uh, New Proofs for Existence yeah. of God. It's a fascinating read. It's one of those books that, you know, I it's a whole library of other things from redefinatics and, and the infinite. But yeah, that's a that's a fascinating to think about you know, our culture, it glorifies science, but it's not pushing people into science. Yeah, that's true. It's and not it's teaching true. people to be scientists. Sorry. That's true. That's true on all counts. And it's certainly not reflecting the belief of scientists in the transcendent and God. Yeah. yeah. What I'm interested in with the, those four levels of happiness is it's almost like, uh, you know, um, uh, in political terms, we talked uh, a whole lot in recent years about building a wall. Uh, let's not get political, but I'm thinking, I'm, I'm visualizing that uh, our culture is trying to build a wall between level three and level four. And it's almost like it's posting deceptive signs uh, for those who want to uh, or who have that uh, aspiration to approach level four. It's saying, make a U-turn here, go back mm -hmm. to level two and start all over. Mm -hmm. is, it, is there something like that going on? Because if we don't have level four, then we have nothing to beckon us forward, mm -hmm. really, to motivate us onward to spiritual yeah. growth. Well, you know, there's something to St. Augustine's statement, for thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Yeah. In other words, we if we don't have level four, Augustine's right, we'll, we're going to have an experience deeply because we're made for a relationship with God, right? We're going to experience deeply emptiness, alienation, loneliness, dread, fear, and guilt on a very, very profound level. And um, uh, we, you can't imagine what those feelings are like the, the more distant we get from God. And uh, does the evil spirit use that? Of course, the evil spirit uses that. And of course, tries to uh, sort of exaggerate the alienation, the emptiness. So we already feel from natural causes. But all that being said, I mean, is, is it happening in our culture? Yes, it is. I think the new atheism is definitely uh, a materialistic and secularistic movement. It's, you know, they're, they're not giving, you know, what's, what's in uh, Dawkins' book, The God Delusion? Nothing new. <laughs> it's just the same old rebaked 
uh, you know, um, uh, what I would call ag agnosticism and, and, you know, tending toward atheism, which even Thomas Nagel, who says, you know, I just really would like to be an atheist more than anything in the world. But quite frankly, the neo-Darwinian uh, materialistic uh, view of, of evolution is almost certainly wrong. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> at least they're honest people, you know, and yeah. uh, Dawkins perpetuates the myth. So, you know, my, my thought is, yeah, kids believe them. They don't know anything. They don't know what's going on in terms of uh, new um, uh, discoveries in cosmology. They don't know what's going on in terms of the new discoveries of the, you know, design, you know, within our free parameters. Exceedingly, exceedingly, exceedingly improbable design of the constants and initial conditions within the free parameters of our universe. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on in even peer-reviewed uh, you know, medical studies and near-death experiences. They don't know what's going on, frankly, in the whole you know, discovery of evolution. Yes, they're fascinated by multiple dimensions of universes and all kinds of possibilities like that. And they throw around terms like, um, you know, oh, well, there must be some kind of a, an eternal inflation, which leads to an infinite multiverse where anything can happen. We don't need God anymore, except for one little thing. Even Stephen Hawking thought that eternal inflation in an infinite multiverse could never be commensurate with our kind of universe. And in fact, attacked it in his last paper uh, that he wrote, um, you know, um, uh, for the uh, Journal of High Energy Physics. Uh, you know, Tom, uh, we have a whole bunch of physicists, which I, I won't go through, but Tom Banks is worth, uh, you know, talking about because he actually shows again that the eternal inflation scenario actually undermines the very principles of what's called coleman delucia tunneling uh, that is needed for quantum gravity to get off the ground. Uh, it, it, it undermines that. So from an empirical point of view and a scientific point of view, the eternal inflation infinite multiverse hypothesis is not working. And then you've got Boltzmann brains and brief brains to top it all off. I mean, basically, if the eternal inflation hypothesis is correct, then every single one of us we are not the carbon life forms we perceive ourselves to be. We are definitely Boltzmann brains that have basically fluctuated into existence in a thermal vacuum. And a few seconds later, by the way, with pre-programmed memories of ourselves being carbon-based life forms and a universe like this one with friends like uh, Bill Schmidt and, and Paul and everybody hey, around us. Paul. We know all these things are there. So so, you know what? Uh -huh. yeah. there's, a, there's a lot for Occam's razor to uh, attack in that, oh, yeah, uh, that absolutely. picture. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Davies described it this way. He said, wow, it's like bringing excess baggage of Occam's razor to cosmic extremes. <laughs> right. right. Wow. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, you thought, and you all thought epicycles were bad. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, one of the big things that you've uh, helped so much on is the uh, that um, compatibility reteaching re teachers and students about the compatibility and indeed the synergy between science and religion. So I'm wondering now, given what we've been saying about uh, you know kind of uh, a new religion uh, approach, et cetera, what do you see going on now, or what do you what do you consider might be Next steps that we have to guard against, even in Catholic schools, already students are being kind of deterred from uh, religion by the promises of science as poorly taught, perhaps, by some science teachers. Uh, but uh, now it seems like students could even be distracted away from religion by this other religion, which seems to really feed their sense of, oh, I, I want an instant available new identity for myself, and I want to create reality for myself. That's actually even more luxury than real science offers. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like three things are competing with each other, religion, false religion, and science, or maybe false science, too. Yeah, I, I would say that all of the above is pretty much true. I think you've identified it. 
I do think, you know, the false religion of uh, you are who you want yourself to be. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't really work. And <laughs> you can tell that doesn't really work when you let's take transgenderism as you know, the statistic I was just talking about. We know what the cause of, you know, somebody wanting a sexual reassignment surgery is. The cause is a great deal of anxiety. 65% of people who want sexual reassignment surgery have been abused as children. Uh, we know that 80% uh, experience a great deal of anxiety in the household. And for boys, you know, the anxiety of the mother is very significant. For girls, the anxiety of the father is significant. And so we know that there are just in 80% of these households, there are a great deal of anxiety in the household. And then there probably is some kind of latent homosexual desire. You combine all those anxieties. And what you have is somebody who does feel a tremendous sense of self-alienation. Admittedly, yeah. they think that the solution is to get a sex change, that they've got the wrong identity. But there's no scientific evidence, not a single scintilla of scientific evidence that shows that there's any such thing as a gene or a genetic or a biochemical or biophysical influence that makes for a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. There's no possibility of, or there's no real, uh, you know, actuality of this at all. So that's there's no science behind it. And the reason there's no science behind it is because it's simply untrue. 80% of people will revert back without therapy to their natural biological identities if you just let them. And the other 20% that want the sexual surgeries, right, that, you know, they, they will need therapeutic help. But here is the upshot that shows that the myth is wrong. If you don't treat the anxiety, so if you tell the child, ah, you want a new sexual identity, that's good. Uh, you go ahead, Joey, and you become a new girl, you know, and I'm going to support you in that. And the minute you turn, you know, 13 years old or 14 years old, good adolescent, you can go ahead and get on the hormones and get your sexual identity changed. No problem there. We're going to support you. Well, if you do that, here's what you can expect to find. Okay, so Joey gets the sexual reassignment surgery, um, and let's suppose he's 15 when everything is completed, 16, 17, whatever it may be, uh, when the sexual uh, uh, reassignment surgery is completed. We can expect to find then that Joey will say for the first two years, this has really worked. My anxiety levels are now lowered. I feel like I really am who I'm supposed to be, uh, who I was meant to be. And uh, so then we can expect that the next two years, uh, after that seeming feeling of everything is well and good, there's all of a sudden a realization that the anxieties haven't gone away at all. But all I did was suppress them in the belief that the sexual reassignment surgery, quote unquote, worked. Mm -hmm. And then I can expect to find in the subsequent fifth and sixth year that there's going to be a great deal of uh, exacerbated depression. And the reason for that is because now I see three things. My anxiety level is exceedingly high. And this time I feel an alienation from my new sexual identity instead of from the old one. I look upon myself and I go, wait a minute, this isn't working. I, I My anxiety level is worse than it was before the sexual reassignment surgery. And I permanently damaged myself. And there, yeah. there's no return from what no. I have done to myself. And no. then we see the staggering after the sixth year, we see the staggering 19 times increase in suicides yeah. because... They're at a point of no return. That is amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, just, yeah. just go back to your, you know, you, we, we have to accept, you know, who God created us to be and who we are in the world. You know, we just don't have the, the luxury, as you put it, of mm -hmm. reassigning our identity every turn mm -hmm. time we turn around. You know, I, uh, we all grew up and some of us grew up in well-educated families. Some did not. We can make up for some of that, but we can't change our past. Yeah. 
We just can't no. change that. I mean, uh, Bill, you know me. Uh, I'm never going to be the the uh, consummate athlete. I mean, uh, <laughs> you do, this is just, uh, I can't rewrite that script. It's it's in my body, you know. I, uh, yeah. Aside from the blindness, there's the usual uncoordination and so forth and so on. So, I mean, uh, you know, we, we have to, you know, some things can be improved. You know, obviously I can, you know, t- take pains to try and become slightly more uh, coordinated or something of that nature, but I'm never going to be, uh, you know, a super athlete and so forth and so on. Some people, you know, they, they say, you know, I really, really want to be a physicist, but, you know, <laughs> try as they might, that's just not their gift. Instead, their gift is literary and that's okay. I do yeah. literature, you know, that's, that's yeah. who you are. That's the muse you have received. You yeah. know, just to, that's where we have to, to build. And, and the new religion, it's so bankrupt. You know, if you think changing your identity is going to make you happy, you got to look at the secular academic studies because it's screaming out precisely yeah. the opposite. Right. Yeah. 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 Modern yeah. society is conducting all these massive experiments on itself and refusing to look at the data afterward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what they, they're calling it is, you know, that the, the uh, true freedom and true freedom will make you happy. Well, no, uh, true freedom is based on truth. Right. So, <laughs> That's I a good mean, starting point. First thing, and yeah. if you don't have a, a freedom based on truth, it's really not going to be true freedom, and it's not going to make you happy. Uh, false freedom based on falsity will surely make you unhappy in the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one or two other quick topics, if you sure. What uh, you've been a champion all along of uh, Eucharistic. Mm-hmm. Catechesis, Eucharistic coherence, uh, mm-hmm. the the renewal that the bishops are working toward, with the uh, with the uh, USCCB meeting completed, and mm-hmm. with everything that's gone on, uh, uh, and the prospect of much more coming forward, right, with uh, the uh, uh, Eucharistic Congress in 2024, mm-hmm. et cetera. What are your thoughts about a the centrality of the Eucharist to what has to uh, be our agenda now as Catholics, and also uh, uh, how how do you see it working well and uh, prosperously? Yeah, good, uh, good points. One, all of them. Uh, number one, uh, Jesus made the Eucharist central to the Catholic Church. Let's face facts. That commission of Saint Peter, uh, right in in Matthew sixteen seventeen through nineteen. Um, Jesus was definitely serious when he said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's creating an office with those keys and the offices to the prime ministers are the keys to the, to, to the kingdom, right? Is the prime minister's office. That's the person who holds the place of the king until the king returns. So uh, he can run the government uh, for the king as the king is out on expedition. And Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter. And I don't think that that commission um, was can be interpreted any other way other than that office was uh, created for not only Peter, but for Peter's successors, it would be not wouldn't be necessary to create an office and give it to Peter, and that's it. So I don't believe that the Protestant interpretation can ever hold water. I don't think it is really coherent from an exegetical point of view. But the second thing, though, is let's look at what Jesus said: "Do this in memory of me." I mean, he says that about nothing else other than the Holy Eucharist. And that notion of reliving, that notion of anamnesis, of you know entering into the mystery once again, as he has described it, will give all the grace and the efficacy um, of Jesus' salvific act. His intention is to, as it were, collapse time from the present moment back into the past when he is literally giving his body and blood in the form of bread and wine, uh, you know, the uh, uh, trans um, uh, substantiated bread and wine, uh, giving that to his apostles at the time of the Last Supper. So when you're, you think about it, Jesus is saying 
this is this is the primary thing that do this in memory of me that is the the primary way we stay together as catholics that's the primary way that we get the graces necessary for salvation how do i know that because i read john 6 30 through 52 if i mean how do you interpret john 6 30 through 52 how can you possibly interpret it any other way? How does this sound? Um, um, I am the bread come down from heaven. And, you know, later on to say the bread that comes down from heaven is life for the world. And then later to say this bread is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, what more do we need than Jesus saying all of that, as it were, in the Gospel of John. What more do we need besides do this, relive this uh, ritual, which is the real body and blood of Christ? And I can show that uh, very definitively. We need to say that to the kids. Jesus is the one who made the Eucharist the center of the church, made the the Eucharist the center of our spiritual lives, made the, the Eucharist his own gift of his self, his body, blood, soul, and divinity to us, right? What more do we need than the command of Jesus that this is the central right? Now, you know, of course, people go, well, you know, that's great that he said it, but what he really meant is symbolism and so forth and so on. Let's go (laughs) back to John 6 again. You know, why are all those apostles leaving Jesus in massive numbers after he gives the Eucharistic discourse? So much so um, that, uh, you know, Jesus says, well, are you going to leave me too to his own apostles? And they go, no, Lord, you know, we've come to believe and see that you have the words of eternal life and so forth. You know, now what's the point? People are leaving, not because Jesus said, I would like you to recall, you know, the symbolism that I've gotten to. That's not a hard teaching, Uh, you know, to remember (laughs) that Jesus, you know, taught something symbolically. This is not asking too much of anybody. Do this ritual. It doesn't even involve slitting a neck and like, you know, sprinkling blood on anything. It's it's real simple. Yeah, exactly. So what we're dealing with, of course, is Jesus is saying this is my real body and my real blood. And that's hard for people to believe. But he's saying, I want you to do this. That's his uh, his uh, uh, command to us. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's uh, pretty clear, too, is that uh, uh, what Jesus you know, is doing in the Eucharist, as I said, is collapsing the time. Uh, between uh, the, the present, he's giving them the, the prophetic ability to collapse the time between the present moment and the Last Supper to infuse the very body and blood uh, given at the Last Supper with the host and the wine, um, as the priest uh, says and repeats and relives those Eucharistic words of Jesus. So when you really get down there, does the Eucharist really perform all of these transformative things? Does it really protect us from venial sin? Does it really uh, you know, forgive our venial sins? Does it really protect us from the evil spirit? Does it really transform us in the actual heart of Jesus? Does it really bring us a kind of peace, even in the midst of abject anxiety? Of course it brings all these things. And people who receive the Holy Eucharist were know it is true. It's absolutely the case. I I, I count myself as a primary example. Uh, As a young man in college, I was uh, your definite, um, let's call it just uh, hardwired utilitarian with a kind of, uh, you know, numbers approach to everything in life and not a whole lot of feelings for anybody or anything. That was just pretty much me. And, um, uh, slowly but surely people would come and, you know, I started going to daily mass because of bet this guy gave me, you know, well, Spitzer, you know, what are you going to do? We're like, oh, I'll give up me. And he said, not me. I'm going to go to mass every day. And I thought, Bert Martinez can go to mass every day. I can go to mass every day during Lent. And I got hooked. And once I got hooked, I started changing. I really did listen to those homilies. I really did enter into that ritual. I really did receive 
in the Eucharist, and I really found myself being transformed. People say, Spencer, you're changing. I say, no, I'm not changing. Same old utilitarian, hard numbers guy without much feeling for anybody or anything that I ever was. And they go, no, you're still the basic utilitarian, hard numbers guy with the no feelings, but you're getting less so. And, you know, and of course, uh, I was kind of the last guy to know. And, uh, um, but uh, it was right. really happening to me. And uh, soon, sooner or later, my religion it became the most important thing in my life. I was wondering, what's going on here? Why do I feel this call to priesthood? The Eucharist. I'm absolutely sure of it. Yeah. So, um, oh yeah, the, the Eucharist, as my niece would have put it when she's a little kid, uh, the Eucharist really works. I don't know what she meant by that. Wow. Right. <laughs> Out of right. the with babes. That's really why. It's a great thing to hang on to. Yeah. 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 No. Uh, Something you just mentioned, uh, uh, Father, uh, uh, talking about um, uh, you know the hard-nosed uh, or the uh, a bit more secularized approach yeah. reminded me of uh, your new uh, website, Purposeful Universe. And Paul, we were talking earlier, and, and uh, that was your first discovery of the Magus Center when we were preparing for this, right? Oh, I mean, I've, I've, I've looked at the, the Magic Center. I've looked at you know your blogs, Bill, actually. You've got a few. Oh, from, thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm very privileged. There as well. There. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, was there a particular? And, and uh, back, back in 2018, when you had uh, you had a conversation with Father Spitz, a new credible Catholic. So I've been there a few times. Ah, but great, I just visited uh, Purposeful uh, Universe today and immediately got sucked into an article about uh, um, gosh, Gregor Mendel and, you know, Darwin, there you go. F- sort of famous guy. Um, this guy named Charles Darwin, you may have heard of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so, so it's just, you know, my, my, my initial random walk through it is, uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm very intrigued to read more. What's, what's yeah. the purpose, uh, oh, purposeful universe overall father Spitzer <laughs> of that website. There you go. Yeah. Well, as you probably know, credible Catholic is almost designed for teachers or students who are really engaged by the Catholic Church, who want to just go deeper and get answers to their questions about faith and science and metaphysics and evidence and proof and so forth. All those kinds of things, you know, but it's for an engaged Catholic, for sure, mostly for teachers, priests, clergy, et cetera. We're trying to give free materials for teachers to use in their classes, things of that nature. But Maja Center, you know, that's for people who are a little bit engaged and want to go deeper, read articles, get videos in the Shrouded Turin, near-death experience, et cetera. Then, you know, what we're trying to do with Purposeful Universe is to give a halfway house, kind of. It's to, to sort of get to a person who has become essentially disengaged. In other words, they've sort of let religion go. Uh, they're in a state of apathy. They don't really want to practice anything in religion. And yet they're kind of clicking along in the, uh, you know, the blogosphere, clicking along in their various website search engines. And to just all of a sudden to see somebody um, like a physicist talking about design, um, and, you know, a Harvard physicist or something or, you know, a, you know, a, a, you know, a scientist. It's just, um, you know, talking about, well, you know, they're. There really are about three or four of these mysteries we cannot resolve, like low entropy at the Big Bang. It's, you know, the odds against it are 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1, you know, which is the same as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys in a single try. Mm-hmm. Yet that low entropy is absolutely necessary for the carbon-based uh, life forms and uh, for the universe that we know of today. And you're telling me, that our universe is the same odds as a monkey typing Shakespeare. Yes, that's that's right. That's an exactly what I'm not just telling you that. Roger Penrose, the great physicist at Oxford, et cetera, and a bunch of a zillion other physicists, because everyone knows the problem of low entropy. At Roger Penrose, yeah. 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 So it's mm-hmm. it's like a huge number of people. So here's the the, the major thing is, you know, um, if all these people are 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 sort of saying this and they're very credible scientific people, then what our hope is, is it going to engage that student and go, wow, hmm, wonder if there's something to this. 
uh, God thing. Maybe if there's something to this transcendent intelligence thing. And then, of course, you go from the one-minute video, you go to the eight-minute video. Okay, you know, and that's that's our hope is, of course, there's only about, uh, I, I suppose, about one-fifth the number of people who actually start watching the eight-minute and do about three to four minutes worth in the eight-minute. There's a lot less, you know, so if you get a million people watching the, the uh, you know, the one-minute video, uh, you're not going to get that many watching, you know, maybe 200,000 at the most will watch the, you know, three or four minutes. They won't watch the whole eight minute. A lot of them will, but a lot of them won't, uh, maybe three to four minutes. And then some of them will actually, on the first try round, uh, will probably go and say, well, I wonder what else they've got on this website. Here's this modest thing wonder what what they got there so that's our uh, one of our strategies but if we draw them in every time we have a special new scientist speaking about purposeful universe that is to say some kind of cosmic purpose within the universe that uh, you know maybe betokens if not indicates a, uh, you know a transcendent intelligence um, in uh, designing the the uh, the values for the initial parameters and the free parameters of our universe um, that uh, if that becomes sort of a, a hook, you know, it draws people in, Oh, they got another one minute video from another scientist and then another one minute video. And well, maybe I'll look at the three minute video from this guy. And maybe I'll even look at uh, the three minute video from the last guy, you know, and uh, so our, our objective is to to sort of draw them in. Uh, we don't want to, uh, you know, punch anybody or push anybody uh, into it. We just want to draw them in and just say, you know, there's more here than meets the eye. Yeah. And so uh, our objective is really to draw them in. And then finally, one day after they've watched maybe a few minutes of the longer videos to go, I wonder what they've got on this Modges website. And the Modges website has four um, different components. You know, one, of course, is science, reason, and faith. Um, that's the first component, no question about it. That's evidence, 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 evidence for God, etc. Then the second one is called happiness and suffering and meaning in life. So when you get to that second landing page, it's really going a little step further it's trying to say to people, you know, you know, if you don't have religion in your life, if you're non-religiously affiliated, you're going to have a huge increase in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, you know, um, familial tension, suicidal contemplation and suicides. And, and that's you know documented not by me, but the American Psychiatric Association. So that's that's, uh, you know, but, you know, I wonder why that would be. You know, and so the idea would be to sort of tempt people into thinking, gosh, you know, we really do have a need for a, an absolute meaning in life. We really do have a need for some kind of context of hope that's eternal. And, and more than this, we're made to be in relationship with God. And when we ignore it, the emptiness, the alienation, the loneliness, the dread, the guilt, the fear comes. And, and so that's the, the, the idea would be to say, but keep looking because right there, it's not that just God exists or an intelligent designer exists or something of that uh, nature, but also that that's the key to the meaning of life. That's the key to your highest purpose. That's the key to your identity. That's who the key to who you are meant to be. You know, this is the real key. Follow him. So, of course, the minute we, we get there, you know, to the happiness levels and draw them in, there's that other side of it, the suffering. Well, why does an all-loving God allow suffering? So, uh, still on that second web page, 
We have to answer that question and then talk about how do you use faith to suffer well? How do you use faith to purify your heart so that your love will become less and less you know, hindered by egotism, that you're, uh, by even narcissism uh, in your life, et cetera? How can we use our faith to become closer, I mean, our, the suffering to become closer to God, like 2 Corinthians 12? I was given a thorn in the flesh and, he, you know, a, a, an angel of Satan to beat me to keep me from getting proud. In other words, the idea uh, is that, you know, as Paul says at the end of that passage, uh, as I grow weaker, Christ grows stronger in me, in my weakness then is my strength. So the idea then to answer that question of suffering and how to draw closer to God through our vulnerability and suffering, that, that's kind of the second landing page. And, and then you get to the third and the fourth landing page, because you, you can answer that question in a theoretical way, but now we got to get to Jesus. So you get to the third landing page, and the first thing we got to do is say, hey, is Jesus for real? Is right. there any historical evidence? And is his resurrection for real? Is there any way of scientifically confirming it? Uh, you, you know what I say about the Shroud of Turin, the extensive investigation, scientific investigation of the shroud that has been done, the debunking of the 1988 carbon dating, which is now so debunked by multiple tests. Nobody can possibly believe the 1988 carbon dating anymore. I mean, that was just, I'm not going to say it was a fraud, but it's as close to a fraud as you can possibly get if it was unintentional. So uh, <laughs> the, the main point is there was a sample taken from an extremely controversial part of the website. Um, you know, I mean, uh, extremely of the shroud. Yeah. Excuse my, my uh, lapse of intelligence there. And uh, once that uh, was taken from that place that was burned and was obviously mended by these sisters in the 15th century with <laughs> cotton, not with linen, which is what the rest of the shroud is made of, <laughs> which was dyed to look like the shroud's color nice. by a gum dye mord that was only available in Europe after the 11th century. Give me a break. I mean, right. this is obviously a sample chosen to... Uh, as they say, throw off the carbon test. But my point that I'm trying to get to is, what does it tell us about Jesus's resurrection? Well, in all probability, what was probably required for that uh, uh, image, a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image to be emblazoned on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth is about six to eight billion with a B billion watts of light energy, about a half a million searchlights worth of light energy emerging for one forty billionth of a second uh, in you know what we would call microwave form, but with an intensity so acute that if that blast of light lasted for more than one forty billionth of a second, it would have annihilated the entire shrouds, including the carbon molecules out of which it was constituted. Now, that's a very unusual burst of light to come from a dead body. They don't right. really do these things. So if you've got another explanation for that, don't give me a chemical one and don't give me a scorching interpretation. Don't give me vapors and rubs because none of them will work. And that's been scientifically discounted since way back in 1978 during the STIRP investigation. We've known that. So uh, if it ain't light, what is it? That's the question for all of us dummies. And the other thing, by the way, is uh, that shroud would have to penetrate the body three sixteenths of an inch, minimum three sixteenths of an inch. Would you mind telling me, um, you know, how does a cloth penetrate that body for three sixteenths of an inch or all the way through the body in one forty billionth of a second, unless the body becomes completely mechanically transparent? That is to say, spiritual. And if the body became spiritual and had a burst of light that was like, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, searchlights worth of light energy bursting from every three-dimensional uh, spot in that body, would you mind telling me 
Uh, how are you going to explain this naturally and scientifically? Uh, I don't think there is such thing. It's a miracle. It's you know, it's a supernatural causation. Now, of course, I just made a big leap there, uh, but the the leap is not unwarranted. <laughs> exactly. That, exactly. So, so let's think this through and think. Well, maybe Jesus did supply us with the historical and scientific evidence of his resurrection 2000 years ago, he just made it uncover. I mean, he, he uncovered it or made it to be uncovered uh, by the time we got to the 20th and 21st century. Yeah. It does seem to have like it came out and was, was first realized for what it was right when it really kind of was needed. It seems like. Uh huh. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of those timing issues, I think, are showing up. Uh, one last question, Father. Sure. I uh, don't know if it's uh, something that you're asked a lot or just very seldom, but I'm thinking uh, that, uh, you know, with the G.K. Chesterton Society, they mm-hmm. say that the uh, most popular question that the director of the G.K. Chesterton Society gets mm-hmm. is, hey, I'm trying to get to know this fellow Chesterton, what would what one book should I read first if I want to get to know Chesterton? And I am I know you as a wonderfully prolific author with so many different books and uh, collections of wisdom in various directions. Uh, if I wanted to just get to know this father, Bob Spitzer, SJ, what what book would you think I should read first? Or uh, what? what uh, is there a key to your trajectory? Of- yeah, I would say, you know, the old scholastic, you know, medieval adage, you know, quid, quid, recipiter, you know, whatever is received is received in the manner of the receiver. So if the receiver, that is you, the person who's looking around and trying to find something of interest, uh, if you have an interest um, in, uh, well, scientific evidence of God. I would read new proofs for the existence of God, contributions of contemporary physics and philosophy. Uh, if you have an interest in the soul, I'd read, you know, the, the soul's upward yearning, uh, clues to our um, transcendent nature from experience and reason. If you're just looking for a general introduction to the meaning of life, and Bob Spitzer's meanderings through it, I, which, of course, are not just mine. The four levels of happiness go all the way back to the time of Plato and certainly before. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm just the, the latest person to kind of do an iteration of this in my own Spitzerian way. But I think the finding true happiness is maybe the place where everybody could begin. But if somebody really wants to know something about God, I'd probably go with the new Bruce book. Somebody who really wants to know about the soul, I'd, I'd really go for the um, the soul's upward yearning. Somebody really wants to know, you know, suffering's the thing that's killing them. I'd really go with the light shines on in the darkness, etc. So, um, you know, it, it really depends on what the receiver uh, wants to know. Fair enough. That, those are good insights. Uh, but you'll you'll still forgive us if we uh, uh, strongly recommend to our listeners that they read every book. <laughs> oh, I would encourage that. Although at the end of it, you'll probably be so sick of me. You'll never be able to turn another page again. But well, then they can simply watch Father Spitzer's Universe on EWTN. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out, Father. It's wonderful to talk okay. with you in this way, and we're honored to have your uh, wisdom with us. And uh, we uh, look forward to many years of further communication with you as uh, spectators and as participants. Oh, thanks so much, Bill and yes. Paul. It's just a pleasure being with yeah. you, too. Yeah. Uh, in, in the spirit of this being Thanksgiving week when we're recording this, thank you so much for your time. We really All appreciate right. it. Always God bless you both. Thank you. Yes, thank you. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.